0: Well, there are different ways that we might consider celebrating Independence Day. The the first one is the obvious one, that is to remember July 4th, 1776, the day when the Declaration of Independence was issued, and that's what we remember today and will be celebrated tomorrow. But there there are other days that we could think about. If we were to think about uh, our nation's independence, we could think about what is often called Evacuation Day or what used to be called as Evacuation Day and what used to be celebrated in the United States. For that happened on November 25th, 1783. That's when the British left New York Harbor. And that's when we were free from all of the entanglements of the Revolutionary War. But that really wasn't the end because we ended up getting into another war with Great Britain and that's the War of 1812. And uh, that war uh, came to a close on February 16th, 1815. And key to that war was the, was the victory that happened at Fort McHenry five months before that in Maryland when uh, the, the, the British unloaded a, a bombardment on that fort. But as you know, the Star Spangled Banner, in the morning, the flag still stood and so we could think about that as Independence Day, couldn't we? That would be the time when no longer would we have any more wars with Great Britain. However, when we think about our history as a people, it, it seems as if uh, though, though uh, that war ended, the Revolutionary War ended and the War of 1812 ended, it, it seems as if America still had all kinds of struggles and has been involved in all kinds of wars and battles since then, and um, it's as if after one enemy goes away, another one pops up. And and truly, we can often think about the Christian life this way, especially living in this world that we live in. We know that we as Christians undergo great spiritual warfare, and uh, no one, none of us, are spared from this. But there is one one hope, one way out, and that is through Christ. And that's where our true Independence Day ought to lie. When we think about it as Christians, that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, He removes our sin, He removes our shame, He removes our guilt, and so th- through faith in Him, we live free forever. Now, as uh, as Dave prayed, that that freedom that we have, that independence that we have, uh, becomes a new dependence. On God, and one of the beautiful things that we have in this text is this: is this this depiction of who God is. Longfellow wrote these words about Satan and his temptations. Satan desires us, great and small, as wheat sifts to sift us, and we all are tempted. Not one, however rich or great, is by his station or estate exempted. And that is true. That is, through, that is true. We, we uh, read this, this uh, psalm in front of us and we understand that, that uh, David is depicting an ideal state in which God sits on the throne. Now, as we read through the Bible, there are a number of themes that we can follow from the beginning to the end. And we've talked about these themes at different times. And one common theme that we can pick out from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible is the theme of marriage. That the Bible opens with a marriage in a garden between a man and a woman. And the Bible closes with a marriage between God and his people in a garden city. And then we trace that theme through the Bible and we see how Jesus is the one who purchased that redemption that we have. So that we know that our our marriages reflect more than just us, they're a reflection on Christ and his people. We have other themes that, that go through the Bible, which we've talked about many times. One is sonship. But, but another theme that we could, we could look at, and certainly we could trace through this passage, is that of kingship, of kingship. God is the true king. God is the ultimate king. But when he made Adam and Eve, he made Adam and Eve to be his vice regents, his vice kings. He gave them authority to work on his behalf in the world, to to, um, to fill the earth and to subdue it. But when Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden, in some manner, in some sense, the authority that Adam had was handed over to the evil one. And I, I don't know how that happened, but we just have statements of Scripture that Satan has this kind of authority. In fact, the Lord Jesus says it in John chapter 14, verse 30. He says, I will no longer talk much with you, For the ruler of this world is coming. Or we notice the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. He says in verses 1 and 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. In which you once walked following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Or we notice what the Apostle John says in 1 John. Chapter 5, verse 19, it says, And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So we know that we're living in a day and age in which we are under attack as Christians, but in the midst of this, David proclaims God as king. Well, true freedom, true freedom is only experienced when we find that freedom in Christ. True freedom is only experienced when we find that freedom. In Christ, this psalm that we have in front of us is very interesting. It's the last psalm of David that's listed in the Book of Psalms, and David wrote about half the psalms, and and uh, so this this would be the last one of his entered into this particular uh, into the into the Book of Psalms. And um, each verse starts with a different letter. It's an acrostic, so it actually runs through. If you if we're able to read this together in the Hebrew alphabet, it runs through the Hebrew alphabet. And it, each verse, each verse begins with a different letter, and so it goes from beginning to end. It skips the Noon, which is which is one letter that's skipped, but but otherwise it runs through it runs through the Hebrew alphabet. And so it is a masterpiece of literature, just beyond anything that we can see in the in the words that are beautiful in and of themselves. Well, the truth is, is that when we come to Jesus, we experience true Independence Day. And we have three reasons to celebrate this. Number one, his is an eternal kingdom. His is an eternal kingdom. We notice here right at the beginning, David says this, I will extol you, my God and my king, and will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. It's so interesting here that, that David speaks this way of God. You can see he is not a tyrant like many of the tyrants that we have in, in our world today. Uh, tyrants in our world don't want any opposition to God. They don't, want, um, they don't want people to have their allegiance to anyone but them. You very often see this in countries where you have communism that dominates, whether it be uh, total communism, economic communism, or just social communism in places like china but but in these places in the world what what uh, places like north korea which is which is economically and socially communist a place like that where the leaders of that country don't want anyone's allegiance to go anywhere but to 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 the state they, they want they want the people of, of those lands to think of of the state as god but notice the humility of david who is a king says, I will extol you, my God and my king. David is king. And bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you in your name forever and ever. David recognizes a couple of things. Number one, as was mentioned, that God is king. But number two, that he will praise his name forever and ever. Why does David have that hope? Because David has experienced the redemption that God provides and so he understands that, that this relationship that he has with God, with God as king, as God on the throne, will last for ever and ever. Just take a moment and think about all the great civilizations that have ever arisen over the course of the world. Probably, probably most of us can recite a lot of them when we remember our world history class, maybe from middle school or high school. But we think about the empires like the Sumerian civilization. Or we think about ones like the Egyptian civilization we think about the Assyrian, or the Babylonian, or the Greek, or the Persian, or we think about the Roman, or even in more recent times, the British Empire. What do all of those empires have in common? They're all gone. (laughs) They're all gone. Now, yeah, there's a semblance of, of, of those nations, certainly Great Britain, and certainly places like Italy, but the empires are gone. And there's no greater civilization today on the face of the earth than than the one that that the United States leads. But the reality is is that if the Lord tarries, this civilization will uh, will, will disappear as well. And, uh, but one thing we know about God's kingdom and one thing we see from the very beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible is that God's kingdom is forever. And so David, even though he is the king of his own kingdom, he baths in the reality that God's kingdom is forever. And so he says, He'll extol and bless the Lord and praise God's name forever and ever because he knows that it will endure forever and ever and he knows that those who are hidden in him will live forever with the Lord in this great kingdom. Number two, God's cause is bigger than any one of us. God's cause is bigger than any one of us. We are part of an unbroken line of faith that stretches from the very beginning of time throughout all eternity. He says in verse 4, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. One of the beautiful things that we see about salvation and faith is that it's always been the same. It's always been by faith. When human beings turned against God in the garden, God provided another way. He promised that he would send a Messiah to save. And the people of Israel in the Old Testament, they look forward to the cross in faith. Just as we look back to the cross in faith, so that salvation has always been by faith from beginning to end. We share this this line of faith. We we share in this, this, this wonderful family that God has provided from the very beginning of time. And this family will last forever and ever. And so what does each generation pass on to the next one? Verse 7, it says, They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. One of the best, one of the best gifts that we can give to the next generation is to tell the story of how God has worked in our life to them. Can't tell you how many times um, I've, ha- I've had a-, a funeral and and uh, ask Ask the family and say, um, so tell me about the person's faith. They'll say, well, I know, I know the person believed, but they were private. They didn't talk about it. And I know a lot of us feel that way about our faith. But what we need to do, what the psalmist encourages us to do, what David encourages us to do is to, to tell others about what God is doing in our life because that encourages other people. That encourages the next generation. We need to talk about it. We need to share what God has done. We have a story of George Mueller. Many of you may be familiar with him. We've mentioned him many times. George Mueller was, was, was a, was a Prussian-German man living in the middle 1800s, and George Mueller uh, was, was, um, was a rebel when he was young. He used to make fun of Christians. He was uh, as rebellious as rebellious could be. And then someone invited him to a Bible study. He thought he was going to go to the Bible study to make fun of the Christians. By the way, he was a theological student at the time. That's interesting. But he went to the Bible study to make fun of the Christians there. And then it was in that Bible study that God touched his heart, changed his life, and he decided that he wanted to become a missionary. Well, his dad was very upset about this. He didn't want his son to be a poor missionary. But George Mueller somehow ended up in England and George Mueller started an orphanage. And throughout the course of his life, 10,000 children were taken care of in that orphanage. And how did he do it? How did he raise the money? Well, he had a very interesting method. He never actually told anyone of the orphanage's need. He just prayed that God would provide the money. And over the course of a lifetime, 10,000 children went through that orphanage, and God met all of their needs. There's one occasion where... um, The the children were together. He had 300 children at one time. They were ready for breakfast. They were sitting around and and, uh, waiting for the house mother to come in, and she came in and she announced, Mr. Mueller, there is no food left in this house. George Mueller said, Well, then we're going to pray and we're going to thank God for the food anyway. And so then they prayed, and then when they were done, all of a sudden, no sooner were they done praying than they heard a knock at the door, and it was a baker. And the baker said, uh, I couldn't sleep all night. I had this burden. Somehow I, I felt as if, if, uh, if that you needed food here today. And so the baker said, I baked three batches of bread. And the baker came in and he brought the bread and there was enough for the 300 kids. No sooner had the baker come in the door, but then there was a, there was a milkman who knocked on the door. His cart had just broken down almost right in front of the, of the orphanage. And then the the milkman said, my cart is broken down. I was wondering if you would be in any need of, of any milk. And so at the end of that morning, all of those children had bread and they had milk and their stomachs were full and God provided. And all George Mueller did was pray that God would provide and God provided over and over again. I know that God has worked in amazing ways in so many of your lives because one of the blessings of of uh, being part of the leadership is to hear your testimonies of faith when you come and you become members and you share those stories with, with, the, with the deacons of the church. But what a beautiful thing if we tell those stories of God's faithfulness to us, to the next generation so that they will begin to hear, they will, they will see how God has worked in us and when they see how God has worked in us, that'll give them the strength to go on in their own times of doubt, in their own times of struggle, in their own lives. We notice this. This is something that David did. How many of us don't know David's story? Well, if we're unfamiliar with it, we just read 1 and 2 Samuel. It's written across the pages of those books. We see it. And we all have a story that God has given us to tell. And it's important that we we share it from one generation to another. Notice the way that David takes old truths and he shares it for the next generation. In verse 8, it's a quote of Exodus 34 6, when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the law a second time. And these words were given to Moses, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. Notice how the word all is repeated in verse 9. Notice this is common grace, that God is good to all creatures, all that he has made. Sometimes we have this idea of God as if he is a hateful God, but we notice that he is good. He is good to all, and his mercy is over all and all that he has made. You know, when our founding fathers came to this country, so many of them wanted to model, they wanted to model this country off of what they, what they, they understood in their faith. And one of the, the amazing things, if you ever have a chance to see it, it's in Plymouth, it's called a monument to uh, the forefathers. And this particular monument is a, is a, is a giant structure. It's, it's near the waterfront, front, but it's kind of hidden in a, in a neighborhood. And if you go to that particular structure, you will see that at the very top, there's this tall woman pointing up to heaven. This, this structure was first conceived in 1820, fairly early on in our country's history. The cornerstone was laid in 1859, and it was finally completed in 1889. But there's a woman faith and she is pointing up to heaven, pointing to the fact that, that uh, if, if we are to experience true liberty as a people, our first place that we look is to heaven. Because the reason why this was, was constructed was a roadmap. It was constructed as a roadmap for, for our nation if our nation ever came to a place where we lost our liberty. If we ever came to that place, an impasse in that way, we would know where to discover that liberty, and it begins with faith, faith in the Lord. And then um, there's a series of, of other statues that are around this particular monument, this giant woman faith. And if you look at it, you'll notice one is morality. And if you look at the statue of the woman morality, you will notice that her eyes are turned inward. And by the way, all of this is described in a, in a documentary called monumental her eyes are turned inward and the reason why her eyes are turned inward is because because any society that's going to have true liberty must have morality from within and this morality is a morality that comes from the gospel it comes from the transforming power of Christ because on the side of that statue where you see morality you see another depiction carved into the statue and you see evangelist written underneath it that, if America is to experience that, it must come uh, we must govern ourselves, and the way that that happens is through being transformed by Christ. Then the next figure around the the monument is law, and then following law, we have this this other a depiction of education and then finally you have the man liberty who stands in a defensive posture he has the symbol the lion draped over his shoulder the defeated enemy of britain over his shoulder and he sits there and then that's how we discover liberty but the the one that that interests me is the one law because you have law sitting there on his on his on his seat and on one hand he has the law in his hand but on the other, he has an outstretched arm. And what this depicts is the perfect intersection of true justice and mercy. And this is, this is something that our founding fathers understood when they, they looked at our, our nation and the very best of our nation and what our nation could be, that we would be a land where we would have laws, but on the same token, we would be a people who would be Merciful. And where would they get an idea like that that we should be just people but also a merciful people? Well you have no better depiction of justice and mercy crossing one another than you see at the cross. Because God is a just God he must punish sin. Because God is a just God he must punish wrongdoing. But because God is a just God he sent his son in our place to go to a cross to die for our sin so that through faith in him we can have eternal life. And so in the cross, we have this perfect intersection of justice and mercy. And in it, as the forefathers conceived of our nation, truly living in liberty, they understood that that is, the, that is the beginning. That is how we understand justice. And that is how we understand law through the lens of mercy because this is the kind of God that we serve. So often when we think about God, sometimes we construct images of him in our own mind that are, that are not true. Sometimes we think about one who just sits there and is waiting to strike us down or waiting to to knock us down, waiting to put us in our place. And then we see this depiction through the cross of a God who is perfectly just, but at the same time, he is perfectly merciful. Thirdly, the third thing we notice is that God actually cares about us and is at work in our lives. Do you realize that about him? He cares about you, and he's at work in your life. Notice in verses 10 through 13, it says, And all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all of his words and kind in all of his works. I always wonder what the attraction is to deism. Deism. Deism is a belief system that God started the world and that he left it alone. He, did, he doesn't interfere in the, in the affairs of, of men and women. He just lets the world go on. And we had a few founding fathers who are deists. Thomas Jefferson, Franklin, they were both deists. And today, I think probably in part because of the internet, there, there seems to be kind of a resurgence in interest in deism and you wonder what the attraction is. Well, we know on one part, part of the attraction is, is that it's hard to look at the created order around us, isn't it? And believe that there's no creator. As I mentioned to you uh, a few, a few uh, months ago, um, my, my son uh, took a baseball to, the, to his right eye and all the bones shattered around his eye. But the thing that the surgeons said us was kind of said to us was interesting, and also not only the face surgeon but also the eye surgeon said to us, the whole system worked as it was designed. Well, if if the system worked as it was designed, namely to protect his eye, all the bones shattered so he could keep his vision, and then uh, then they said, and all the bones just pop right back into place, just like they were supposed to. To say that there's a design means that you must believe that there's a designer, right? You, you can't have random design, not real design. And so part of the attraction of deism is that, that uh, when you look around you, you look at the world around you, it, it, it's, it's hard to imagine that there's not a creator. You see the complexity of the body. You see the complexity of creation. You see how everything fits together. You see how the animal kingdom works. But on the other hand, the attraction of deism, I think is that the God that they believe in is impersonal, isn't involved. Yes, there's a God. I have to acknowledge that God made the world, that he made it, he made it in a way that is in sync and, and in a way that operates so beautifully. And no matter how much we, we look outward into the cosmos... Uh, or how how much we look deeply into the cell and even beyond that into quirks and neutrinos and different parts of physics that only people with with superconductors can see. Even as we look at the complexity of the, the universe, whether we go to its smallest parts or its biggest parts, we see this beauty about it. We see this order about it. But then on the other hand, if there's a God... And he's impersonal, it means that I can do what I want. If he's a God and he's impersonal, it doesn't matter how I live. But I, I want you to know that, that knowing a personal God is so much better than all of that. Notice, notice how personal God is in these verses. We notice in we, we just think about our own lives. We think about maybe the, the bondage that we were in to to uh, lust or hate or selfishness. And then we come to Christ and then the door is opened into our heart to true freedom. Notice how it describes this personal God that we worship and we serve and we love. Verse 14, he catches us when we fall and he lifts us up when we're broken down or bowed down. Think about that. Isn't that the kind of God that you want to know and love and walk with? Verse 15, every creature looks to him to meet our needs, and he feeds us with an open hand, tells us in verses 15 and 16. And so the way that David depicts God's relationship with us, think about it for a moment. Think about all of our needs that we have, whether it be food or shelter or, or uh, some other need that we have in our life. And David looks at it as, as God uh, coming, coming to us and opening his hand and, and giving it to us. We look up to him and God feeds us. You ever been to a petting zoo? And, uh, and then in the petting zoo, there might be goats there, sheep there, whatever, and you take the little food and you, 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 you put your hand out and then the animals eat off your hands. Well, this is, this is how David is depicting God. This is how he takes care of us. This is how he feeds us, that, that he's this personal God who, who's involved in our life and it matters to him what's happening to us. He goes further in verse 16. He satisfies the desire of every living thing. And we notice in verse 17 that that everything he does is is marked by two attributes. That is righteousness and kindness. Righteousness and kindness. God is a safe harbor to us. He's created a world that's orderly where we can live with him and experience him and his fullness. And then we we read in 19 that that he hears the cry and saves those who fear him. Yes, God is a just God. Verse 20, it says, the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. And we ask the question, why? Why? Well, God made a way through his son to rescue us from his justice. Not that justice wasn't served. Justice was served in his son so that through faith in him we can have eternal life. But God will not force someone to receive the gift that he has to offer if they refuse it. As we've mentioned many times, A.W. Tozer was asked the question, where does a person go when they die? And his answer was, they go where they belong. If we don't want God's offer of pardon, if we don't want his offer of salvation, then we will not receive it. But if we do want it, if we come to him in faith, we will receive it and he will rescue us and he will save us. And so we have this again. We see this justice perfectly depicted in Christ's work in us. So why does God share all of this with us? Why did God do this? Is it because we're adorable? We're just so adorable. Timothy Paul Jones, he's a theologian. And uh, he wrote a book on grace, and in his book he describes a situation that his family entered into. There was a little girl, she had been adopted by one family, and then that family gave her back up for adoption. His family adopted her. So imagine that, she was given up for adoption twice. She was adopted twice. And she wasn't treated really well by the previous family. In fact, she wasn't really treated like a member of the family and so um, one thing that he knew that really was painful for her, a painful memory, is that the family would often go to Disney World. But when they went to Disney World, they wouldn't bring her with her. This is the previous family who adopted her the first time. They would only bring their biological kids with her, with them, and they would leave her with a family friend, and they would go down to Disney, and then they would come back, and she would hear all these stories about what um, they did there, and she felt rejected. So when Timothy Paul Jones adopted this little girl and he heard that story, one of the first things he wanted to do is he wanted to take her to Disney World with his family. As soon as he announced that they were going to Disney World, the reaction wasn't what he expected. She actually became very disobedient. She started telling lies. She started... um, She started... uh, uh, whispering insults to her siblings she started stealing food and and, uh, this went on for quite some time and so timothy paul jones took her aside and he said "Uh, what what's what's happening why why are you doing this and she said she said does this mean that i can't go to disney world and timothy paul jones said to her well who's going to disney world isn't it our family and she nodded yes and then he said to her, are you part of the family? And she nodded yes. And he thought that things would get easier, but actually as the days moved toward their trip to Disney, things got worse and the ride to Disney was, was hard. And, and then finally they made it there. And then, and then after, a, after a full day that this little girl, for the first time spent at Disney, she was like a changed child. And, and at the end of the night, at the end of the night, um, Timothy Paul Jones called her in to talk to her. And I'll just, I'll, just, um, I'll just read to you what he wrote. She seemed like a changed girl. This is what Timothy Paul Jones wrote. He said, She closed her eyes and snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn. <laughs> After a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. And that's the same thing with God's grace. The reason that God saves us isn't because of our goodness. It isn't because we're adorable. It it, it isn't because of something we've done or we merit that. No, it's because we're his. Through faith in Christ, through the work that was done for us in Christ, God adopts us into his family and as a result of that, we receive this blessed inheritance of being in relationship with him. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And I hope, I hope that every person here has experienced that gospel. I hope you know this Savior. For the Christian who has allowed thoughts of God to enter your head that, are, that, are, that uh, you, you think of God as an angry God who is ready to strike you down, I want you to meditate on this psalm, Psalm 145, because it gives us a true depiction of the living God that we serve and his goodness and his mercy and his grace and his loving kindness. It knows no end and it will be forever. And when you're in Jesus, you will be praising him forever as well. Do you know the Savior? Do you have a relationship with him? Have you experienced new life, the new life that only he can give? Let's pray.